to another episode of Cross Street Coaching. We've just kicked off season two, and this is going to be a really fun episode because this is my first return speaker. I have Love Odi Kamui with me. Hello, Jason. Hello again. So glad to be back. <laughs> yeah. And we had been talking after the, the last episode of season one, which was Love's episode Unsiloed. And that was at the very, very beginning of COVID-19. And we were talking a little bit about how that was impacting us, how that shaped the work that Love is doing. But so much has transpired that we both agreed that there was a lot more for us to say, and especially with as divisive as the topics such as protests and everything that's been going on. This is, Love has seen an influx in our business. So I was more than honored to have another conversation and welcome back. Thanks for having me. Yeah. So as tradition, Love, how do you like to be introduced for those that did not hear Unsiloed Part 1? Hi. So my name is Love Odi Kamui and I am the founder of Unsiloed. And what we do at Unsiloed is inspire and engineer inclusion. And this, there's no time like the present where that's needed. Yeah. And because it is so necessary and so needed, before we kind of start breaking apart what some of your thoughts and my thoughts are on recent events and protests, I'd like just to pass the mic to you and just let you kind of share what you'd like to talk about today and maybe how you're processing some of the things that are going on. And we'll start there. Sound good? Sounds good. So it's such an interesting time. And I come to this with multiple lenses, if you will. Um, I'd say in some sense as a student of history, because, you know, I studied history and criminology first before I branched off law and rights. I, it's, I am just stunned at one, why almost as if history is just repeating itself, but it seems like it's with a different flavor this time around. Um, maybe the revolution is being televised and, you know, this touches on so many theories around peace building where a key part of change work is visibility. And when we think with my legal lens, um, evidence and witness is a huge part of interrupting crime or interrupting wrongdoing. So we have, we have history we have evidence, we have visibility, we have passion and motivation. And I truly hope that this is the right mix for the type of change or to push us along the course of change that, that we wish to see. I've also recognized that there is just a deep interconnectedness of humanity. Um, I was scrolling through some pictures recently, just again, from a historic point of view. And a few years ago, I visited South Africa and went by Nelson Mandela's home where Winnie Mandela had stayed um, while he was incarcerated. And one of the quotes there was her saying, Soweto is everywhere. Soweto back then was no Known as you know, protest and trying to fight armed um, apartheid systems of exclusion, and they had this worldview that these systems and structures were deeply everywhere. So for them, they wanted to set the standard for the undoing of all of. And it sounds like there is so much critical mass and energy, which I hope is sustained with quality, accountable actions that causes us to feel like people can feel their human rights being lived out in every interaction. So by no means is, you know, South Africa or Soweto, I'm sure there's always work to be done in every environment. But those were just pieces of my reflections that um, I recall, I've been recalling the last few few days or few weeks in thinking about how this change evolved. And um, in my work, I've recognized, and I think a lot more people are, are recognizing that there has to be interconnectedness in the change. We need a lot more, um, more of a wheel of change as opposed 
opposed to here is one way in which we change. So there are people who are putting their bodies on the line. There are people who are stepping up as allies in this work. There are people who are doing bystander interventions. And it's not just, you know, last time we had a lot of conversation on biases and microaggressions. And I'm hearing people say, well, we're done. You know, those are the basics. Show us how to um, deeply uproot the ways in which exclusion happens from our everyday interactions, from the systems and structures that we interact with. But there are also people who are grappling with whether or not any of this is a reality. So what that calls for is space for conversation, space for learning, and space for supporting people on a one-on-one basis so that they can, that we can all realize this change. Because my sense is that we are all the better for it. You know, like no one loses out by allowing someone else to have equal rights or have someone else to live a just an equitable life. You know, it's like you go to bed happy and someone else goes to bed happy. It's not a zero sum game. You know, it's it's there is more for all. And I'm I'm really hopeful that this has opened the door for a more sustainable city. Yeah, I truly hope so. And I have very, very similar thoughts because a lot of the times that the backlash that we see from movements like Black Lives Matter or equal rights or addressing minorities is always this what quote unquote what aboutism. But from my vantage point is to tackle these issues, to talk about it, to recognize that I'm a white male of privilege and that someone next to me, I can help them to be treated better. It doesn't take anything away from me to to say that. It doesn't hurt. It doesn't hurt me. It sucks. It doesn't feel good. But ultimately, at the end of the day, I'm still myself. And so I'm curious from your perspective and the conversations you had, what do you think is that hesitancy to make that space and have these conversations when you really dissect it and people aren't losing anything by uplifting people that are not having the same access to whatever part of their life? Sure. I think there are several things that happening, you know, and as individuals, I certainly can't speak for everyone, but just in reflecting on how studies have shown um, the human condition, it's, there's fear, there's fear at the base of it for a lot of people. There's a lot of anxiety. um, And, you know, even reflecting on our previous conversations, there are good people who have bad biases. And, you know, it's one way to think of it as, you know, I'm, you know, I'm a white male, right, for yourself. Mm -hmm. But there are no um, blanket assumptions on what's the lived experience of every white male, right? There are no assumptions on what what are the lived experiences on every black woman. For myself, I've been trying to bring to the conversation intersectionality and that we all, we a complex um, ball (laughs) of identities. So someone might present in one way and may have may hold other identities for them. So, you know, the black experience is not a blanket experience. And I think for some people who struggle, I imagine they might be thinking, hey, I've gone through a lot. I didn't just have life handed to me. Um, but the question is, you didn't have life taken from you just because of color of your skin. And that's the conversation. That's not- so in the work that you're doing with these conversations, what is the starting point to open the door for people who are not? having a firm grasp on intersectionality and when we kind of handle stereotypes because that's the way that we process right based on what we've perceived so you have someone that maybe is in an urban environment they're on the east coast or in new york city they're on california they see a lot of diversity but is that always your client base i know you know i i for me it's easy to sing to the choir and i'm not quite interested i mean i am very interested in people who have the heart commitment to do the work because i believe that there is a mistake of doing 
checkbox inclusion mm. or doing um well <laughs> calming people down which in the history of never has that been possible um so i and i think there are many companies who are struggling with some efforts to suppress dialogue and in a true uh pressure cooker if <laughs> effect seeing that explode somewhere else so the goal is to take the energy around this positive or negative or apathetic and find a middle ground and find a way to not negotiate over the humanity of people to but to have a better appreciation of who we are as people. so i also know that people are at different places in their journey and for my company we use an approach of meeting people where they are so i don't work with people and say well here's your menu of trainings and um, workshops or conversations that you to to do it's what have you done what's not working what are some pain points and how can we support you to make this a sustainable process moving forward um also in the field of conflict resolution there are always champions and there are always spoilers and then there's you know everyone else in between who are likely to do the work so it's acknowledging the champions of this work because while there's a lot of visibility and a lot of money being invested in diversity equity and inclusion right now there are people who are within organizations who have been advocating for this they may not have gotten voice so i think it's really important that as this work is done those actions are recognized um and if people have caused harm to those people to take restorative measures to reconcile that and for those people who are in theory known as spoilers which is they they, they might not be on board to make space for them to feel supported and i think coaching is a brilliant way to do that now th there needs to be some understanding by the coach or the person providing that support of the inner workings right so I, I think there is coaching about um various things but because of the unique nature of maybe someone's view that may not be at the same place as other people within their organization to probably offer opportunities to explore with a bit of information gathering or sharing resources and engaging with them to support them along this journey. The goal isn't to suppress those voices and have them go underground and then perpetuate harm in other way, other ways, right? The goal is to say, you are all the better for this. We are all the better for this. We are all better for this. And there's also an opportunity to find common ground um, in, in peace building and in making um, our spaces more inclusive, whether it's religious belief or beliefs that are apathetic to religion, there's hardly anyone, you know, barring, um, I would say, uh, a condition that believes in suffering, that doesn't believe in the golden rule, <laughs> that doesn't believe in like, you know, do unto others. So like at the base of even humanity, it's like, hey, do you believe in the golden rule? Like, do you believe in human suffering? <laughs> right? Do you believe that people should be punished for things that they did not do? Or do you believe that people should put in work and not be recognized? I can't imagine someone, no matter how terrible they are to answer no to anything right so it's also again in the in the ways that we engage with people who might feel very hesitant about this to again meet them where they are with them and i do really resonate with how you describe that because that's very much my similar approach even on current topics as is, is that most of these discussions which happen over social media is that i tend to gravitate on starting from common ground rather than uh, trying to change their mind so when you are working with a client and you're identifying a champion, knowing that it may not always be the most outspoken person that has political
political t-shirts that is Instagramming themselves of being at protests. What are the qualities that you look for knowing in an organization what that organization's champion looks like? Sure. That's a really good question. It's a basic question. Who has been advocating for something similar to this inside? Or what have your efforts looked like in the past? And I've heard a range of things like, oh, someone was trying to put together a working group and it didn't quite take off. Someone drafted a proposal, but we didn't quite get it to action. Or we started, you know, putting something in our parking lot for some trainings, you know, and it's also, you know, can I talk to this person? Can I see what, what did they have in mind? Because my sense is that they probably did a little bit of needs assessment, however loosely, um, you know, I'm using that word, right? <laughs> so not coming in as say, hey, I can fix your problem because within companies, if someone has been there two, three, five years, they have a better sense of the culture. They have a better sense of what things are like when the light is not being shone on the company, right? Where Or an organization. So it's also finding space to elevate those voices, acknowledge the work that they've been doing and offering them um, support in a partner type way. So as you have been finding that a lot of companies are certainly, I, I think the better term, the best term I could put it is bandwagonism, where now it's it's very in to be very socially progressive. And I'm getting emails from that one company that I bought, you know, the cat treats for two years ago, supporting me during COVID-19, now also saying that they support uh, Black Lives Matter. How do you differentiate tokenism and people that are looking to check the boxes from people who are taking this work seriously and truly looking to make their company culture more inclusive? That's a very interesting question. And I I want to sort of maybe start off saying that I don't know, you know, and that's in the spirit of the type of dialogue work that I, I do. I don't know where your heart is. And people change. They may start a conversation with tokenism intentions and 20 minutes in, they're experiencing a personal shift. And I have to make room for that, you know, and change doesn't come easy. And oftentimes change is difficult. The motivations vary. And I want to acknowledge that there are a lot of people who've been at the front line of change work for years and have felt underfunded, unacknowledged. Um, They have been sidelined. And that is a very painful thing for a lot of people who lead change work, who've been advocating for this for years. What I will say is that if people are coming to the table, I always make space for that. Um, My area of practice is conflict transformation, which looks at opportunities to take crises of human interactions and move them to a place of greater connectedness, move them from polarizing to connectedness to humanizing people. So it's easy to say, hey, you're tokenistic and checkbox, but it's more difficult to say, let me hear you on what are you trying to do? What are your goals? Um, How would you like to see sustained change or not? Um, How can I support you in that process? Now, something that's also important to consider is that in addition to policy, in addition to making statements, a line item on a budget is probably the single most objective indicator of someone's commitment. So I've done a lot of research on gender commitments at the national level um, in my experience working with um, United Nations agencies. And I've done a lot of research that indicate that even if someone says we need to be more gender inclusive because that was the wave, right? A few years Mm -hmm. ago, it was all about me too, right? (laughs) We need more harassment, you know, anti-harassment policy. We need to hire more women, you know, and now it's race. It's, it, it's still all on the spectrum of, of grave inequalities. And, you know,
you know, people have been asking for very specific, measurable actions. Please show us a picture of your board of directors. Please show us a picture of your C-suite. Um, what is your budgetary commitment to this work? Um, are you only having people volunteer to do this work or bringing in change agents and having them to do emotionally laborious work and be underpaid for it? You know, people prioritize what's important to them. Mm -hmm. And I'm sure companies will say marketing is important to us and we are going to do this. So I've been pleased to hear um, companies at the global level, um, while uh, while there is a gender parity, when their gender parity um, commitments and documents for countries, I think companies who are now saying we will commit X percent of our budget to black owned businesses, we will commit um, X amount of seats within our executive. It's not that these people are difficult to find. You know, the thing is, we do business with people we know, like, and trust, right? That's what's being marketed everywhere. Well, you can't know, like, and trust people who you are not in the same social circles. So the metric of know, like, and trust is highly biased. You will know, like, and trust people you went to school with, who your uncles had drinks with, who was your dad's baseball coach, you know? And, and that's the metric. So if you can look around your circles and you aren't expanding your circles in a way that's building rich, deep, non-optical relationships with people and being intentional about that, then we will begin to break that. But then the question of racism and injustice is not just only social, it's economic. Economic exclusion from people of certain identities, from of people of certain identities from having access, right? Access that will cause them to build generational wealth, access that will cause them to allow um, their kids to have access to certain educational opportunities so that they can break the cycle of poverty. So it's it certainly has to be beyond a statement. It has to be what are the ways in which I'm going to change my policy and allocate a specific amount of measurable target that will hold myself accountable, ac accountable in the same way that I hold myself accountable for all the other things that are important for my company or for my organization or for my country. And I think that's really where we need to shift. Wow. That was really very, very well said. And I do think that there is a, a, a certainly a double-edged sword when people are looking for measurable results. And the example that you proved is show me your show me your executive board, where a company can post as very, very inclusive, and then yet their board of directors could be all white colleagues. But that also can swing the other way in which true diversity and inclusion work is not just about making sure that the, the board of directors fills a, a certain percentage pie chart, but that when they are hiring people for the role, that they are selecting from a, a nice, diverse candidate. Absolutely. So knowing, yeah, so knowing that that what we can visually see can be both a red flag or can be mis misconstrued. What is it that people on the outside of these companies are are actually looking for when they're not doing this work to say this is this is definitely a company I want business. With. This is a company I want to support. It, it's well, that's what's challenging, right? It's hard to tell from the outside, but I think that there are a few indicators. Well, what I'll say is that over the last few weeks, companies have found very creative to communicate their <laughs> oh, yeah. commitments. So um, I have just seen a lot of change. And, you know, in my mind, I'm saying, wow, I know people have been advocating for X thing for 10 years. Um, 
I wonder the person who advocated for this, what was the pushback that they experienced? What was the nature of relationship that they had with their manager? You know, were they penalized for being too aggressive? You know, were they penalized for being antagonistic? Right. So I think the leadership of an organization, you know, so, so when it comes to quotas, quotas are usually a way to begin change work. It shouldn't be permanent. Right. Mm -hmm. So quotas are necessary to shift us to a point that people would just naturally not go to, to get us used to the fact that you can have people other than those who you're used to occupy those positions. So it's almost a way of creating space for people to prove themselves. And I think we can throw out any argument that this is about putting less competent people in positions of leadership. There, There's a lot of um, research and articles around the level of competence of people who are in some senior positions who are well known to probably not have been the brightest crayon in the box. <laughs> However, with the right connections, they got oh, yeah. there. So, and it's quite known or um, the statement of, I would say black people that you have to work twice as hard to get half as much as a black woman. I know when I, I, and that as much as I do this work, I still feel the sense that I have to work twice as hard to get half as much. I have to not just pass the, I not just pass the, this is what I know, but that I am likable, right? And likability is very subjective. Likability can be swayed based on what you're used to interacting with, right? And a concept that a lot of people might be experiencing right now is the sense of racial anxiety. Racial anxiety means feeling really nervous about saying or doing the wrong thing with a person of a race other than yours. And it's something that, you know, a lot of white people might be feeling right now. Like, hey, I want to say something nice. I'm not sure what to say. I'm not sure what to do. I don't want to mess things up. And this is something that both good intentioned or bad intentioned people can experience, right? So when you put that in an organization where they haven't sufficiently expose themselves to people and cultures that are other than themselves, then there's just so much more room to misconstrue behavior and responses um, from people other than those who they're used to, you know? So the, the stories that you share, the jokes that are common to you are just probably not common to the same people, right? Because it's, it's a culture. So having a chance to understand other people's lived experiences and explore from a place of genuine curiosity is going to be a key aspect of um, breaking down the barriers. And for me, that's why I really advocate for opportunities for people to engage in dialogue. I have seen amazing transformation of people entering a room and saying, I have no business talking together and I don't even know what's the point of this to shifting unprompted to a place of deeper understanding or deeper empathy. And this doesn't mean that they now agree on the same things. It's just that they now see each other as people worthy of respect worthy of being humanized um, and worthy of being understood and part of the worlds that they live in and, and equally worthy of equal access to opportunities. I really honed in on you identifying racial anxiety because that, from my vantage point, is is what very, very prevalent both um, in my day job and in the work that I do is that well, don't want to get it wrong. But for as much as I have worked in this space is that I, I know that I get it wrong and I mess up and people correct me and like life moves on. But not everyone feels that way. So if we're thinking about how to start to 
to lower that anxiety when a lot of it is like, you think that's bad? Try living like this or try experiencing this and people like to pass it off. But if we are looking for true lasting change, what are some of your recommendations to handle racial anxiety? People that don't want to get it wrong. I'd say come to take a class with me on how to engage in empathetic listening. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so so we learn to talk um, as humans from a very early age for some people or communicate. I don't know that we learn to dialogue, except you're probably a theater student that, you know, you learn the art of dialogue or the psychology of dialogue. You know, we just assume that we're, you know, it's mouth to ears. Um, but we have to do a lot more listening than speaking. We also have to check ourselves when we hear something, what's coming up for you? And that's really hard to do in really fast paced conversations. So I'd say to people, slow down, slow down. I mean, the world has slowed us down over the last few months. So Mm -hmm. slow down, take some time to think about what you're feeling before you react. Think about how you can respond constructively. And one way of doing that is doing some reflective listening. And it's there are some basic ways, you know, hey, what I hear you saying is that and you can reframe. You can reframe what the person has said to clarify that you understand. In reframing, the person who has spoken has a chance to clarify, to say, hey, I actually didn't quite mean to say it in that way. Let me reframe, right? (laughs) So now we actually engage in a true social dance of trying to understand each other. But how our heart shows up in those conversations has to be, you know, part of the equation to say, I am really trying to understand you or you said something. Could you say more about this? Could you clarify what you mean when you say X, right? So that is having conversations with intentionality and slowing down because we are at this arc of change and we want to get this right. But also in learning about dialogue and as a mediator myself, I am actually quite delighted um, or I'm or or not even offended rather when I am facilitating a dialogue and the party corrects me and I say, it sounds like you're feeling really anxious and they can come back and say, hey, you know, I'm not quite anxious. I'm frustrated. And that's okay because it's not about me. It's about them. They now have gotten more clear on how they feel. And now I can move forward to say, so how can I support you in this place of frustration? Or what does frustration look like for you? And then they now can begin to explore what frustration looks like for them and how that shows up in their everyday interaction. So we're we're going to have to unlearn old ways of doing things. And in unlearning old ways, it includes learning new ways of interacting with each other so that we can shift to a place of um, empathy and connectedness and just a fresh way of creative problem solving. Extremely well articulated, pulling on the the bread and butter coaching questions there, restatement, active (laughs) listening, empathy, clarification, some really, really good takeaway tools. But as we sort of wrap up our conversation for today, I'd like to know, Love, how are you remembering to slow down, knowing that you come from a mindset where you have to work twice as hard and as running an inclusion and conflict resolution, you know, workforce firm, that there is probably a lot of work on your plate right now. I have lots of tea, (laughs) really like tea. (laughs) Um, So I have been being more, I've been more intentional about taking breaks, even if it includes using 
using the breathing and meditation app on my phone to remind myself to breathe and to hear some positive words of affirmation. I have been connected with friends who are also doing this work and sharing our wins because that gives us hope that there's um, change and there is so much fulfillment in doing this work. And I have been gardening. I love gardening and there's something um, I've been busy for the last few days that I finally stepped outside and I recognize that a lot of the, the plants that I've been taking care of for the last few months just blossomed new flowers and that just gave me so much joy. So I've been really step, you know, trying to take in these small moments and um just being grateful. You know, it's 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 easy to it's easy to fall into various patterns that I tend to fall into, but I have found that gratitude centers me and I'm leaning into that. Yeah, a very common reoccurrence theme on on this show, which is people work from what's working well and being grateful for all those things. Well, love, this has been another awesome, awesome conversation. Uh, we'll obviously try to have you back because we're going to have a small group conversation in the short future. Where can people find out more about you? And especially if they want to learn how to have real dialogue with you from that class that you talked about. <laughs> Certainly. So you can find me on unsiloed.org. And which I'm sure you'll probably drop in the link somewhere. And I am pretty active on LinkedIn. Love OD Kumui is my LinkedIn page. So feel free to reach out. And I really look forward to continuing to support people who are being so intentional about doing this work and sustaining it. Thank you so much for having me. Oh, you're absolutely welcome. We will look forward to all the great content you're putting out. I know I've really enjoyed it and we will be speaking again soon. Thanks a lot.